In this episode of Presbyopia Unlocked, Dr. Kathleen McCabe talks with Drs. Daniel Chang and Rachel Rubel about the diagnosis and education of patients with presbyopia. The three physicians discuss how new technologies and solutions are changing the way ophthalmologists and optometrists think about presbyopia, how they approach patients with this condition, and how it is treated. Coming up on Presbyopia Unlocked. Well, welcome everyone to this episode of the podcast, Presbyopia Unlocked. Today's episode will focus on diagnosing presbyopia and patient education. I'm Kathleen McCabe, and I am a cataract and refractive surgeon, and I practice on the West Coast of Florida. I'll be moderating tonight, and I think I'm uniquely positioned to understand this problem intimately, since I am also presbyopic. Uh, and I'm joined tonight with two wonderful panelists and discussants, uh, Dr. Daniel Chang and Dr. Rachel Rubel, and I'm going to have them introduce themselves. So take it away, Daniel. Tell us about yourself. Thanks, Kathy. I'm Daniel Chang. I'm a cataract and refractive surgeon in Bakersfield, California, and uh, I'm starting to become presbyopic and uh, certainly experiencing that myself as well. Uh, I also uh, like to say that I dedicated my career to conquering presbyopia. So it's always been an academic interest of mine. Uh, I realize it's a big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, and it's fun learning about uh, not only different ways of treating it, but I think even more importantly is helping to change the way we as uh, both ophthalmologists and optometrists think about presbyopia. Because if we don't think it's a problem, we don't diagnose it, we don't educate our patients, then we're never going to treat it. So looking forward to this discussion. Great. And Rachel, tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Yes, I'm Rachel Rubel. I co-own five practices um, between Charlotte and Asheville, North Carolina. And I have an interest in presbyopia because as I am approaching that wonderful um, condition that we are all inevitably going to experience, I think about pa patients that, uh, like my parents or grandparents, that wear the little readers on the end of the nose, and I am never going to be seen wearing those. <laughs> I am determined. <laughs> so I, I have an interest greatly in finding out an, other options for us out there. Well, I'm so glad you can't see me right now with <laughs> my readers on the end of my nose. Oh, oh, I'm embarrassed. Well, good thing this is a podcast and not a webinar, so we're we're safe for the moment. And and I'm really interested in how you approach this because you know, we're fortunate that we have so many different technologies and ways of addressing this problem for our patients at all points in their journey along the road to presbyopia and worsening presbyopia as they age. So I guess we'll start at the beginning. And I think you really nailed it on the head already, Daniel, saying that we need to pay attention to presbyopia. It's something that we may have ignored in our patients who are just beginning to be presbyopic. Maybe we don't even ask necessarily uh, about it. And now, you know, it's actually come to the forefront and it's your mission in life and your career. So I know you've been thinking about it. So what, what do you see that patients are normally talking about and how do you elicit those kinds of complaints from your patients? Yeah, you know, I, I think we, as doctors in general, we tend to pay attention to and treat what we can deal with, what we can diagnose, what we can treat, we can provide solutions for. So it's easy to kind of bypass it. Patients will 
it's not that hard if we listen for it, having trouble up close. Uh, sometimes they'll come in specifically for that. Um, obviously, when we're doing uh, either laser eye surgery as surgeons, you know, and folks who are in their 40s, that will potentially be an issue. And when we do cataract surgery, if we leave them with monofocal lenses, we're leaving them with presbyopia. And so I don't think it's difficult. There's no magical phrase or tricks to diagnosis. It's just listening to it. It's just paying attention. And since we've historically been very limited or somewhat limited in our treatment options and maybe somewhat bored by them, uh, depending on what we like to do, we, we tend to ignore it. So I think just knowing that, hey, there are new treatments options available and that we can uh, actually do something for a broader swath of patients, just again, paying attention to and being aware of it, being aware of it. Daniel, I'm going to just echo what you're saying because I think you're exactly right. I think before presbyopia has really been brought up over the past year, before that, I think many cl clinicians, including myself, we'd hear patients go, you know, I can't see. I have to lengthen my arms to see or I have to blow up my font size. And I think us as clinicians kind of going, yeah, all right, yeah, you're, you've had birthdays or you're getting older. Yep, that happens. And because we haven't had a lot of options to really give patients, so we might not have talked about it as much as we are now because there are more options for patients. Yeah. So are you, I mean, are you staying a little bit more attuned? Is there anything you pick up on either something that the patient may say that if they're a younger patient on the spectrum of age that we normally look at with presbyopia that clues you into the difficulty they're having or, you know, are you stealing glimpses at their, uh, either their, you know, e-reader that they brought with them or their cell phone to see that, that things are, have been blown up on there. What are, what are some of the little tricks and, and tips you might be able to tell the audience about something that should wave the little red flag that says, Hey, Hey, you know, talk to this patient about presbyopia. I think I'm very blunt with my patients and I don't just steal glimpses at their phone. I say, let me see your font size on your phone. <laughs> and, and the, let me see what a text message looks like. And I think that's a clear indication of what are they able to read up close? What are they comfortable to read up close? And then we start talking about how has that change affected you in your daily life? What activities have you noticed that are changing because you're struggling to see a little bit? We think primarily about reading and difficulty with reading. The, the first thing I actually noticed with presbyopia uh, is actually cutting my kids' fingernails. Uh, it's kind of funny. I've, I've cut their fingernails since they were infants, and uh, it, was, it was actually kind of a special moment for me uh, when I was a young child and my dad would cut my fingernails, so I always did it for them. And like, I was having trouble seeing it because we always do it you know, at nighttime. It's in their bedroom. The lights aren't very bright. And I started noticing I was having trouble seeing them. And the second thing I noticed, which was um, probably more important, is when I'm eating. You know, I, I take a hamburger, I bring it toward my mouth, and I was like, hey, it's, it's getting out of focus. Um, so it's, it's nothing to do with reading. I, I'm actually still able to see my iPad uh, when I'm seeing patients or my phone and everything on the default font size. But for other lower contrast activities, lower lighting, that's where I'm symptomatic. Um, and, you know, I've been do I do this for a living, so I'm aware of it. But for patients who don't, they may think, Maybe something's going on, they're getting some blurred vision, they, they have no idea what, what the problem is. Right. You said that low lighting condition. When I'm out in dark restaurants, there's always someone that has their cell phone light or their flashlight on their phone looking at the menu or tilting or angling it towards a candle or a light to see what's on there. So I asking patients that, they're like, yep, that was me in that restaurant. So do you do you pointedly ask them, you know, are you having more difficulty in low light level, you know, situations up close? Uh, is it difficult when your child brings their homework to you and brings it right up to your nose and says, hey, mom. 
look what I did here. And you're like, what? <laughs> step away, step away. So I think, you know, maybe that, those kinds of conversations are, are something we need to make more integrated into our practice, um, just because we now have other ways of treating even early onset or the earliest signs of presbyopia to allow our patients to function a little bit better. Um, in, in a setting where we would have in the past, as you said, say, hey, you know what, that's birthdays, that's time passing, uh, you know, buy your read readers or here's a prescription and, uh, you know, come back and as a surgeon, we might say, hey, come back and talk to me when uh, we can do something surgically for you. So, so I think, uh, I think we're, we're just learning that we need to think more linearly in a lifelong journey for patients in how we can really have a meaningful impact all the way around, along the way. So, and thinking about that, you know, one of those things that makes us want to have those discussions is looking at the patient's age, right? So we start seeing the age when we expect the onset of presbyopia, and we've really used age as how we sort of classify levels of presbyopia, kind of saying, you know, earlier, younger patients, probably pretty mild uh, and moderate as they get older and more advanced later. But we know that that all patients don't really fall into those categories so neatly all the time. So what are the things you're finding or how are you thinking maybe a little bit differently about level of presbyopia and what are the clues that you think are the most important factors to considering where their disability, I guess, or their struggle is right now? And, and go ahead, maybe Rachel, guide us through that a little bit first. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think we were always taught in school ages, you think of a 40-year-old, they're going to be a plus one, 50-year-olds a plus two. But I really don't think we can look at age. Um, and there's new classifications that came out, the mild, moderate, and advanced presbyopia based on their true ad and reading vision. And looking at that, it's so true. I had a uh, retired NFL football player, six foot nine. He's got big paws for hands. He came in and I'm asking him all the questions. How's your distance vision? Do you struggle driving at night or in the rain? Nope, I'm good. How's your near vision? Do you struggle to see up close and dim, dim lighting conditions? No, it's perfectly clear. And he's 52 years old. So I'm thinking, well, that, that doesn't make sense. But he, the way he sits and his posture and his long arms and his big hands, he could see perfect, far away and up close. So he really had functional vision at his age. So that's where we're going. He's a mild presbyope with this low power he needed. Um, and so we have to really look at what our patients' functional vision, what are their daily activities, how are they able to see it, and you know, are they able to relax their eyes up close and really diving into their their personal daily activities. Yeah. And are there other um, watch outs too that, that make you think, oh, this is somebody, um, Daniel, that you're thinking doesn't fall into our normal categories of when we think mild, moderate, and severe or advanced presbyopia happens? Yeah. I think age is, like you said, most commonly associated. The other uh, thing is refractive error. So a lot of myopes, oh, I just take my glasses off. And they, they, they always think they can do that, particularly if we're going to think about correcting their myopia with laser vision correction or doing cataract surgery or lens exchange or something where all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I, I just need distance vision. My near vision is fine. So understanding the dynamics of that process uh, is important. Yeah. Or maybe they're like a latent hyperope and they're coming to you and they're in their, in their 30s and 
it's not really on your radar to even start talking to patients about those problems. Now, those I in I think in my experience are patients who come in a little bit earlier, really thinking something's wrong because they're the only one of their friends, you know, who's struggling up close. But but sometimes not, and sometimes you know they don't know to really tell you about it as much, and we're not as attuned at that age to be thinking about presbyopia. But certainly, you know, those patients are at least outside of the normal age category that we would think of having these conversations. And I think with that, I think screen time is playing a huge role. The amount of hours on the screens that um, Americans have now has increased greatly on a daily basis, putting more strain on our eyes. And so we're seeing presbyopia actually at a younger age than what we typically would think. And they're just doing more near things, you know? I don't see as many people using, and maybe it's just the the people I hang out with, but um, I think people are really using their digital devices and laptops and things that are held closer than desktops. You know, it used to be that everything we did, I think, on computers and internet was on a desktop, which tends to be a little bit further away. And maybe you're not noticing those difficulties up close as early as you do now when so much of what we do is really within arm's length. It's it's on our phone for the most part. So there's an interesting paper, I believe it was a Spanish group was looking at the average work distance and the average cell phone or mobile device use distance. And work distance varies obviously by profession, but independent of that is average cell phone usage distance is like 36 centimeters. I mean, it's less than the 40 that we typically associate with near vision. Um, and even closer for uh, Asian characters, you know, uh, people in China, it's like 33 centimeters. Um, so that really up close vision is really important. And uh, we, we think naturally in terms of 40 and 66 centimeters, but yeah, a lot of patients are noticing symptoms on their cell phone, which is arguably more important to them than their work. Their lifeline of communication with the world, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a study done on cell phones that we look at our screen every 10 minutes or 96 times per day. And yes. it, it, you know, on average, 34 hours a week. That's a full-time job that we're looking at our phone. I mean. So have a- you guys done the little experiments of looking on your cell phone in the settings for screen time that's in oh, settings? Yes. Have you done that? So I'm going to, I'm going to just deviate a little bit here. So just if you have your cell phone right there, but between the three of us, let's see who has the highest daily average. It's so embarrassing, but this is educational, I think. <laughs> So uh, what do you have? Go ahead, Daniel. So mine says one hour, 28 minutes. It's down 13% from last week. But I, I use my iPad a lot. And it's okay. Tracks- All right. I so that, that's say that is so doing. impressive. I am so <laughs> impressed right now. I, I, was, I was like going, okay, now I, I seriously cannot share my time. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so go ahead, Rachel. Make me feel better here, please. <laughs> So my cell phone is my computer. I do all of my work on my cell phone um, and it is average six hours and 20 minutes a day. So, okay. So look, so mine is up 38% from last week. I'm going to say that, but I, I beat you a little bit six hours and 36 minutes. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> but, but it was my birthday. So this week, past week. So, you know, in the last couple oh. of days. So I, I think it was because I was, you know, looking at all the greetings and answering people's text messages. That's what I'm using as my excuse. That works. Cool. I like it. Your <laughs> 21st birthday. So, and we could go through and even see how many touch points and pickups we have, but but I think that's enough embarrassment for the moment. Uh, <laughs> but let, let's talk a little bit about. 
I, you know, this this shift in talking about presbyopia a little bit earlier, or at least having more, um, I guess, drive to do that because we have other devices, drops, and things that we can do and offer our patients even at the earliest signs of presbyopia. So how are you preparing your patients for the fact that this is coming? You know, that maybe they're not presbyopic right now, but we all know time's passing and the likelihood is that they're going to need something to help them up close in the future. Are you doing anything like pre-presbyopia to prepare them for that? Yeah, I would say I'm definitely educating them now. I, I would say, um, you know, when I see a patient that is pre-presbyopic and I'm going, well, in the next one to four years, we might notice some changes in near vision, but don't worry. It's inevitable. It does happen to anyone and we have options for correction. So I just want you to file that away in the back of your head. So if it starts to happen, you're pulling out that cell phone further away, increasing that font size, needing more light we're going to see you yearly and you just let me know as this happens and we're going to be able to adjust your visual um, need and your correction that you're using. So I'm definitely planting the seed early. I think it's so important because then they're not coming in. I I literally had a patient um, this past year that came in who thought she had a brain tumor because she couldn't read up close and said it was all of a sudden and she was so worried and it, and it was a close friend of mine, actually, and she was kind of the first one in our group to really hit, you know, full presbyopia. And, you know, it was just educating and reassuring her she's okay, but it just hit her so hard. So from there, I'm like, I have to let, start letting all of these patients know so they're not having fear when this does happen. So, you know what, I want to actually um, stop there for a second because I, I know you guys are starting to be presbyopic or just about there or noticing some early things in dim light, but this experience of your colleague and friend is, it's that, I experienced that too, where, you know, I was noticing the things that you're noticing now where it's a little bit tougher, maybe, you know, doing the timeout in the OR when they're like putting it really close to me. Uh, I'm asking him to step back, but, but, uh, but the, the next phase where it's really pretty much like everything up close is difficult or impossible does seem to come on quickly, even though I understand the whole thing, right? I know this is going to happen. I've seen the progress with patients before and family and friends. It When it happens to you and it's really interrupting how you function up close, it seems profound and it seems quick. So at least it was in my experience as well. So, so I think even preparing our patients for the fact that, you know, you're kind of struggling a little bit now. We can do these few things, but it may seem like it gets a lot worse quicker than you think is I think that's important too. And probably reassuring as well. Are you doing anything different, Daniel? Yeah. And you know, for me, I create awareness of presbyopia through laser vision correction. So with, with the myopes who are used to taking glasses off, um, I'm counseling very carefully. So if they wear glasses, either they take it off or if they're wearing contacts and they're, they're pro- they can be aware of their presbyopia because they're wearing reading glasses on top of their contacts, or certainly if they have bifocal glasses, I tell them what we can do. So um, I'm not seeing many people for just a vision consult in general, but they're coming in for some sort of surgical intervention. So primarily is to help them understand their condition because patients inevitably say, well, I'm nearsighted, which means I can see up close if I'm farsighted, but then I'm nearsighted and farsighted. And then there's this thing called stigmatism. They're not sure what that is. So it becomes really... (laughs) A lot to talk about. (laughs) Really confusing. So to try to keep it simple, 
uh, I basically say, hey, you know, your your the length of your eye, the curvature doesn't match, and we can fix that and the relaxed state of the eyes for distance. Um, however, it's the lens that's inside the eye that does the autofocusing for distance up close, and because of you know, whatever. And I, I try to elicit that from their history. I say, you know, you're going to notice after we correct you for distances, you're going to need some help to see up close. So whether that's reading glasses, which is what I traditionally uh, have told people. And I said, you know, when you're active, you're okay. But when you sit down, you can wear reading glasses. And I make sure they're okay with that is now we have eye options from a pharmacological perspective. It's, hey, or there are eye drops that you can use to help you see up close. Um, so without having to wear the reading glasses. So it's just, again, from a, it falls more into a general preoperative counseling uh, for my patients because I'm all of my, my initial evaluations, at least are surgical consults. And similarly for cataract surgery is making them aware that we have options for presbyopia correction uh, with different lens implants, uh, whether doing monovision, which I'm not a huge fan of because of the increased risk of tripping and potentially falling. Um, but uh, either monovision correction or using presbyopia correcting lenses and letting them, letting them know their surgical options to reduce their need for glasses afterwards and potentially not have to wear glasses for distance or up close. Yeah, I think we're, we're the, because also I'm seeing mostly patients who are preoperative evaluations for one procedure or another, but where I sometimes see it more in this early presbyopia setting would be um, patients who think, yeah, look, I know LASIK is a thing that helps everybody with without uh, to free themselves of the need for glasses. And now I need readers. Let's just do LASIK. That's going to solve it all. And that's always a difficult category. The emetrope, who's an early presbyope or just beginning presbyopia and thinks LASIK can fix everything. And, I, you know, I haven't had a good bridge to the point where I'm comfortable with their um, with their surgical options. And now that we have drops that can address that and sort of bridge that period of time, I think that's really um, a nice thing. And it allows us to have that earlier relationship with a patient with solutions as well. Right. Yep. So I can think that's kind of the bridge between, you know, both of the approaches that we're talking about here in different journeys for patients. I think this has been a great discussion. You know, definitely these are things that, that we are uh, working on as we have more and more options for our patients to treat presbyopia. We want to first be able to define it, to educate our patients, to know how to talk about it, the watchouts, what to look for. Uh, we've had a lot of great pearls here so far. Any last thoughts or things you would like to get out there um, to help people as they are taking care of these patients and providing these options? Daniel, go ahead and go first there. I, I think we just need to recognize how much of a problem presbyopia is. And I think we as individuals, we go through it. Um, I actually have a little bit of myopia in one of my eyes. So I don't feel it quite so much, but my my distant dominant eye, I can definitely see the, the loss there. Um, but even as we go through it, and for a lot of uh, doctors who are younger or not personally experiencing it, it's just recognizing that the impact on life, we think in terms of convenience and inconvenience, and there certainly is that component. There's certainly a global reduction of uh, productivity, uh, for people with severe or advanced presbyopia who aren't able to function um, in the U.S. Is, is usually there's means, whether through glasses or like bifocal glasses or reading glasses. Um, there are studies suggesting or showing that bifocal glasses increase the risk of tripping and falling, uh, primarily in the elderly. But the risk doesn't really go down. I mean, it goes down, but it doesn't go to zero, even in patients in their 50s and 40s. So just automatically sticking with our old methods of treating presbyopia or not treating it or denying it. Um, needs to come through a paradigm shift. We need to say, hey, 
let's reevaluate. There's a revolutionary new just category, and there's going to be other jobs coming as well from a presbyopia treatment standpoint, but we need to revisit how we think of the disease process. It's a refractive condition. It's coded as such, so we can kind of dismiss it as a refractive error, not a medical condition. And it's debatable whether it's a condition or a disease or an aging process or degeneration or whatever you want to call it. It does have an impact on our patient's life, and it's important for us to address it. Excellent. And how about you, Rachel? Yeah, no, I have to agree with Daniel there. This is something that impacts our patients every single day. And you think about when it happens, it affects patients for more than half of their life they're experiencing presbyopia. So when I'm talking with patients now, it's really becoming an education to them going, hey, I'm here. This is going to change. Let's see how we can help you. And I I look at it like shoes. I have uh, over 100 pairs of shoes. I have definitely have a problem with shoes, but we all have more than one pair of shoes, right? For every, for different activities we do. So why do we have to have just one correction, like one pair of glasses that gets us through our life for every single activity we do? So I present it to patients like that going, hey, let's talk about all of the options that we have to correct your presbyopia, whether it be glasses or contacts or drops or corrective surgery. We have options and we can do a combination of them and kind of build a toolbox of things you can use to correct that near vision based on what you're doing that day. And I think it's important for us to, as eye care professionals, to recognize that there's just not one answer of go buy over-the-counter readers or this is your one pair of glasses that you're going to use every single day, day in and day out. Um, so I think it's important that we we take the time and we educate the patient so they they know that they have options. Yeah, I love what you both said that, you know, this is a journey of from the very beginning, uh, educating the patient, having that conversation, building that long-term patient relationship. And it may start with smaller or less invasive interventions, but there isn't just one answer that you have at one point of time, as you were saying, Rachel, that that's the answer for life. And it's not just how we approach presbyopia, but I think presbyopia really fits well into that relationship of a patient of their their lifetime in a longitudinal fashion thinking logically about what's the next step, how do we continue to offer the patient the most visual function, and where will that evolve to in the future as they move through different levels of presbyopia and different stages in their life. It's true for other things we think about, right? Glaucoma, uh, dry eye, and I think refractive error, including presbyopia, is part of that lifelong plan and education and treatment for patients as well. So I really, this was such a great conversation. I love all the pearls that you both shared. And uh, it was wonderful to have the chance to really talk about these foundational aspects of how we think about and educate on presbyopia and then eventually treat and walk through that journey with our patients. 